And just to remind you, you know, at the very beginning of the epistle of this letter to these churches in Asia Minor, again, an area that we would know is kind of the larger region around Turkey. So, so much of the church at this point had begun to advance westward, okay? And so, even really just about a hundred plus years after this is written, um, you have in Istanbul, you have some people like Tertullian and others that are beginning to do some work theologically, systematically. I mean, things really began to go quickly uh, over these next hundreds of years, uh, especially the first 300 years of the early church. And so much is being laid in the groundwork here with what Peter is doing is it's one of the older, first and second Peter, two of the older epistles that are written in the New Testament. So just remember that context and also remember the context too is a persecution. So as they are in the West and it's a, a very mixed syncretistic society, people coming from Greco-Roman, also Jews, that there is a lot of potential for a combination of false teaching uh, as well as a great opportunity for unity and solidarity around the gospel because these people are different. And because they're different, it gives a great opportunity for the church to show what must unify us above everything else. So in the midst of this, though, we know that if we are faithful to the gospel, just as Christ said himself to his own disciples, he said that the world is going to hate you. They are going to treat you like they are treating me. And of course, uh, they didn't even know all that that meant except for hours later when they really began to see how the world would treat Christ. Now, this wasn't, again, going to be because of the fact that they were being jerks about being Christians or that they were just being mean-spirited about their beliefs. Know simply that any time that you preach something of the gospel of grace, it removes and diminishes the authorities of men over you. It also speaks then, it's going against the principalities of this world, the spiritual forces, so to speak, that were consigned to this world, Satan and his demons, because then it says that there's a greater treasure than what you can find in this world than just the pleasures and, the, and, and sinfulness, essentially. You can actually be free not to do those things. The gospel sets you free from that, and yet Satan will do everything possible to remind you uh, and to try to put back in front of you that maybe you're not so free after all. And yet the gospel of freedom, the gospel of grace actually speaks just the opposite. So there's going to be persecution, and it's going to come in different forms. But for them, at the time, it was coming from the outside. They were having their, their goods plundered. They were having jobs and positions removed. They were actually even then physically being harmed for the sake of the gospel. And it was causing discouragement because again, as they are a new church and developing, that there still was this sense of why aren't things going better if we're believing rightly? And so in the face of that persecution, there was a lot of potential for there to be discord. Okay, now one of the things that people do with discord, and we see this early on in, in uh, the account of, let's say, like, I don't know, Exodus, when you're going through the Red Sea, great blessing, and it just doesn't take long before the people of God are actually complaining and disputing about him not making provision because they're going through suffering of not having enough food, not enough bread, not enough water, so on and so forth. And so this God who did such a miracle just literally a few miles down the road are complaining about what God has not provided and afforded them. Now, again, that's more of an indictment on us than we should go, oh, can you believe those people? As if we would do something different. We are very quick and able to complain. But the, the other thing is this, though. If you really look, and I would encourage you at some point, maybe read Psalm 106, Psalm 107. I think really Psalm 106 especially, though, 
if you really pay careful attention to some of the passages there that are being written about the children of Israel and the Exodus generation, it's interesting because what began with disputing and complaining ended with they were sacrificing their sons and daughters to demons at the feet of idols. Physical persecution or physical suffering led to complaint, which was a slippery slope all the way to false teaching and false worship. Nobody, nobody back here when they're complaining about not having bread actually thinks that they're going to kill little Johnny at the foot of a golden calf. But that's what happened in the wilderness with some of them. We need to take caution when it comes to what happens to us when we begin in response to difficulty to complain against what the Lord is doing, okay? So with that, go ahead and with 1 Peter, we're actually going to be beginning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is all we're going to deal with this morning, and then we're going to be sharing in the Lord's table together. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Remember that qualifier. Because it is both causal for their ability to put off certain things and to practice certain things, but also the absence of these things could be an indicator that perhaps one hasn't actually tasted that the Lord is good, meaning that they haven't actually been truly born again. Okay, let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to discern rightly your word. Help me to be very simple and clear in the explanation of it, the declaration of it, and the proclamation of the gospel that's in the midst of it. And God, may it produce every ounce and bit of transformation that you desire for it to produce in believer and unbeliever alike. God, do your will in us, through us, and I pray that as a result, God, we might find that we are, uh, on one hand, a much more gracious and loving body, even with our words, not just here, but out in the community. And on the other hand, God, that because of that, may we be even better equipped to share the gospel itself because in that kindness and in those loving actions and in the absence of there being harsh speech and action like the world has, that there may be truly salt and light with our speech and our actions that actually allows us to speak into the lives of others who do not know you. God, produce that in and through us for your glory and for the good of the people here. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, I don't know about you, but um, as I went through and was thinking about college, my dad and I had a lot of conversations about what college was going to look like. Again, I wanted to play sports, so I was, I, part of it for me was to find a place where I could walk on because I had a kind of a serious kidney uh, injury issue in the middle of high school, and so recruiting actually went bye-bye for me, and so for me it was going to be walk-on. And so in the midst of that, I didn't want to mess around with small schools, so um, I, had a good, I had an opportunity to go to Baylor and went through that process and didn't end up playing for lots of reasons, um, for 
I won't go into details. Uh, it had nothing to do with my talent, though. I assure you, no, it actually had a lot to do with my <laughs> lack of ability. But, um, but I, can, I can tell you that in the course of it, though, I had already been called to ministry. Okay, I had been called to ministry at the age of 14, 15 years old. And so my dad and I talked a lot about what to do as far as a major, because on one hand, I knew I did not want to get a Bible degree, even though I strongly believed I was going to be in ministry, because I wanted to do something that at least if I needed to do um, bivocational work or something like that, because I was even open to doing mission work and doing something overseas. And so um, I was very practical and went in with accounting. And I think it was the first semester of my junior year when I got into second intermediate that I realized that that was not God's calling on my life at all. Um, it's amazing what a D in your major actually tells you about what you love and hate. And so um, I listened to God and immediately went from there into marketing. And so marketing was very much my cup of tea. I actually had this desire to, I was a musician and played in bands and I wanted to write jingles and do different things. And, um, but I was also... <laughs> It just wasn't good because every project was always, uh, basically, I took it as a, as a joke. And, and it, 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 it just falls flat when people are very serious-minded about how they teach you. Um, so it didn't always go well, but I finished with marketing. It was great. But, you know, it didn't take long to realize there's really nothing you can do with that except just go do sales or whatever. And the fact is, is that I didn't actually need it because he immediately went and did missions in Germany. And finally, it wasn't until I was 40... 45, 46 years old that I actually needed a, um, you know, some kind of, you know, regular degrees because then I turned into this bivocational person. And it's amazing what, I don't know, 25 years does, lack of experience, lack of jobs, that to how much veracity does a degree in marketing hold from 1991? Not a lot. So in the midst of all this, though, I was still remind, you know, remembering because for me, in about, two, in about 2000 and I guess it was 14, I had to rethink, what does ministry look like? Is this going to look differently for me moving forward because of a major transition in our lives? And as I looked at that, I was, I was remembering this tenet. I was remembering this thing that dad and I used to talk about, and I've certainly shared with other guys along the way, which is just this simple idea of find something that you love. And if you can get paid for it, then you really essentially have a career, you have a calling. Well, that was all well and good, but I've already been doing that for 25 years, which was preaching and teaching the gospel. I mean, that's what, that's what I wanted to do for my life. And so it was, it actually, this great advice as I'm remembering it and, and continuing to unpack it at this midlife stage, which I've talked to several of you. Some of you have had to make those difficult changes in your 40s, even early 50s. And that's a tough, tough season to try to make a career change. And, I, and for me, it was actually not an encouragement because it kind of doubled down on the sadness that I wasn't teaching full time at the time. And so, but it was a good reminder still to actually then persevere, to remember that God had placed a calling on my life because that is the difference between just getting a job and having then a career or a voca, vocation, which would be a calling, is that God has put something in you that you want to do very much desire to do. And if by God's grace, you are able to get paid or have provision with that, then man, that is, that is a really sweet place to be this side of heaven. Okay. It's not, you know, it's not rosy, you know, it's not perfect, but it's still closer to just, this is what I was made to do. It's what I was meant for. 
Well, we can hear that advice, and that does make for decent career pursuit. You know, if you're a career counselor in high school, it's good. You know, go ahead and have those conversations. Wouldn't you like to do something with your hands? Let's unpack that, and let's go on down and talk about, let's do some career counseling. Do you even need, do you need trade school, or do you actually need a traditional college education? Those things can be really helpful, but in the bigger scheme of things, let me elevate it just a little bit, maybe a lot, and that would be this. Wouldn't it be great if as a Christian, the thing that you were the happiest to do on a day in and day out basis was also the thing that gave you the absolute greatest amount of growth in Christ? Wouldn't it be great if what gave you the greatest joy also afforded the greatest growth? Too often for us, what it ends up being like is really this. It's the thing that we have to gut out. We have to make ourselves do. We know that's what's best for us, but we just don't always feel that much joy in it. We just have to gut it out. Now, don't get me wrong. You guys have seen fathers and you've seen others who have had that good hard work ethic. And there is a joy in watching someone who's just gutted it out for 35, 40 years to make provision because they've seen a greater joy even than their work, which was providing for their families. Awesome. That's great. But I can tell you that according to the scripture, if you are struggling with any particular sin, if you are struggling with any of the sins, especially these five that I'm going to mention this morning, if you're struggling with that, or if you're struggling with some other besetting sin that's, that seems a little edgier, that maybe you don't want to utter, I can tell you, as we've been talking about in the last few weeks, the solution to that is not just simply to stop doing it. It's going to be to displace or replace it with the desire and the joy and the passion that Satan has twisted and helped you believe this lie that somehow this desire can be satisfied in this sinful action. So if you're struggling with lust, for instance, you're desiring something when it comes to intimacy, you're desiring something when it comes to sharing and companionship but you've ceased to believe that God's gonna do it his way. And if you're married, sometimes it's because you stopped working at your marriage and it's just a lot longer on-ramp to get that joy back, it seems like, and so you take the shortcut. But we can do that with any number of things. Guys can do it with ethics. They can, they can do a little bit of nudging on the books, so to speak, because it's just, Things have changed. Taxes, they, they convince themselves that they're being robbed by the government by certain new rules and laws. And so they start to shave some things to get some of that money back that they seem to be losing. But it still ends up being deception. It still ends up being against the law. But there's a holy desire behind it. I want to honor God with the work of my hands. I want to honor God by providing for my family. I want to do this. I want to honor God in this way. I want to have a vibrant, vibrant, intimate relationship with my spouse. There's a holy desire and a holy goodness behind this thing that Satan has just given you just barely enough truth, but then you've believed the lie. The only real way long-term to defeat besetting sins, to defeat sins that have just really been kicking your backside for months, if not years, is to displace it or replace it with the holy version of that pursuit. When you want Christ and you take more joy in Christ, you will start seeing sin not just as getting in the way of that joy, you will see it as a colossal waste of time. 
Anything that we can do to find deep, great joy in what the Lord has afforded us gets us closer to, from every possible angle, seeing how wasteful, how unnecessary, and really how distasteful sin is in every regard. And we need that. We don't just need the, I don't want to have a guilty conscience when this is over and that's what keeps us from sin. Because frankly, a lot of us have learned how to manage that guilty conscience just enough and we keep sinning. We need to see just the affront that this sin is from every angle on our communion with the Father. Now, what Peter gets into here is in response to what's not in response, but it's an outworking of what's going on in verses 22 through 25 that we looked at last week in chapter one. Here's what he says. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away, and then he lists five things. So in the most immediate context, he certainly is saying, because he just got through saying that if indeed you have been born again and you have this imperishable seed in you, and that is you've been given a new nature in your conversion through the person of Christ, you now have new desires. And he says one of the evidences of that is that you actually love one another. You love the body of Christ. So then when he goes right into in chapter 2 verse 1, it says so, and then talks about the things to put off, we know that one of the aspects of this is that these things, these five things are intensely unloving to the body of Christ. He is saying so in light of that, in light of the fact that you are born again and that you are called to love the brethren, loving the body of Christ, put these things away because they're unloving. But we also saw with what he talked about in chapter 1 that there is an intense connection between when you are born again and you have the evidence of loving others, that it actually produces this, this sustained hope in the kingdom to come, which changes your, behave, your behavior there and wanting to actually live a holy life, that all this stuff works together. So anytime that we then allow sin to come in, it's not just a disruption to all these beautiful things that work together. We have to understand that it actually is exposing a deeper issue, a deeper problem. It's symptomatic of something. So he says, put away all malice. Well, what we have to understand about verse one is that simply this, if we desire as a people of God to develop a taste for the better things, which is what this little section's about, getting a taste for the better things, we have to first of all have a growing distaste for what is impure, a distaste for it. The first thing he says to put away is malice. Now, before we go on, when he says so, we've made that connection. So, as a result of loving others, as a result of you having this imperishable seed, and he says put away. Now, put away is exactly what, I mean, the English translation is solid. It just means to cast aside, to put down. It sounds almost dismissive. It sounds almost like it's easy. But the thing isn't about ease. It's about ability. If you have the imperishable seed that he spoke of in chapter one, then you now have the new nature that enables you to get rid of sin. Whereas before, when you were bound to your sinful nature, 
you cannot get rid of these things. I mean, they may quell for a season, but they're only going to go away for a season when you're around people that you like. See, again, they're in the face of persecution. There's a great opportunity for them to be malicious back towards those who are being malicious towards them. Do we not see this in the political realm? If your side's malicious, what you're setting up is the other side, when they're in power, is going to be malicious back because that's how people work. The body of Christ should not be. We are to be the ones that take the hits. We turn the other cheek. We give the cloak off our back. We go the extra mile. There's something about us that is different than the world. And he says to put off being malicious. We're to cast it away because we have the ability to because of this imperishable seed that's inside of us if, again, you're a believer. Malice is this overall spirit of kind of depravity. It's evil. It's wanting to be troublesome. Even if you feel like that your platform is just, the fact is, is that if you just want to cause trouble for the other guy, you want to harm them, even if it means just basically, (laughs) oh man, there's so much I've got to not do right now. I'm going to go ahead and let, there's battles and I'm, little rockets are being shot off in my head and I'm destroying rabbit holes that I'm not going to go down. Okay, there we go. I'm good. So, um, I just, I'll let you watch that. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it does to me. So, um, the idea though is that even if someone else, let's say on the other side of the aisle actually agrees with us, just simply because they have a title or a moniker or something else, we're still going to either vote against or we're going to go against them just because of who they are. Even if we are in complete agreement with what they're saying. That's what it means to be malicious. Because I don't agree with you in larger principle, but if on this particular issue we do, you have no ability whatsoever to actually calm down and just simply be in unity with someone, even just for a moment. Because there's this maliciousness inside that says, I want to always cause problems for this other person, no matter what. It drives you. Now, maybe that's not you. Great, that's already been put off. The problem is there's five things. And so um, usually when you have any, number, any kind of a list like this, you, you, there's just nowhere to hide. All deceit. All deceit. All types of deceit. Now this is simply being tricky. It's having guile. It's having basically a self-centered motivation for doing something that is a bait and switch. It could be to decoy, to distract. It could be the smallest thing. But it's this idea of being deceitful. It could be carving out, for instance, let's talk about in the church, partial confessions. Yeah, I've really been struggling with, okay, first of all, let's get rid of that gerund because it's not struggling. If you're saying it, that means you fell flat on your face. You probably embraced it, knelt down before it, worshiped it, you know, sacrificed everything you could to it, enveloped it, was baptized in it. I mean, whatever you need to say, but it certainly wasn't a struggle. I mean, you rolled over and died at the foot of this thing. But that's not, let's not make fun of that because we've all been there. But let's call it what it is. But is it not just a little bit of deceit in us that would try to qualify just how much we sinned? We do this in the church. We will go so far as to carve out little prayer requests for ourselves that will act as some sort of confession to just cleanse our conscience, it proves that it's not genuine repentance when that's going on. 
All we're trying to do is make our guilty conscience be relieved. We're not trying to actually seek restoration and healing to the Holy One. Deceit. Any kind of decoy, any kind of deflection away from the real issues of people looking into our lives. We're to do away with it. It's unloving to others. Hypocrisy. This is just being, having a deceptive lifestyle or being an actor. I mean, not actually, but maybe. Um, it's being unreal. Now, it's very in vogue for many people outside of the church, obviously, to look at the church and, and, and just call us hypocrites. And we should humbly accept that and say, yes, and I hate all of my hypocrisy. And we are together to try to battle that together. We're, we're together to try to make sure that we are consistently those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In many ways, I would say there is a kind of a, a subtext to that when it comes to 1 Peter, is that there's this, we're just trying to be the real thing in the midst of real life, real life difficulty together. You're right, we are. But there's still a reason why so many outside of the church still make that claim because they've seen it in the news. They've seen that kind of duplicitous behavior where there are those who claim, but it, it truly is that double life. It truly is that dupe, that trick, that keeping things close. And then at some point it's revealed and it shows you who they really are and were. And unfortunately, that's been shown before the world. That doesn't mean we give up on trying to be the real thing in the church, guys. He's still going to make for himself a beautiful and pure bride for him to come and receive. Envy. This is just being jealous, even spiteful about it. You don't like what someone else has and therefore, you don't like them for having it. Do away with it. Again, remember, backdrop is persecution. Backdrop is suffering and difficulty. This means that some people in the church are actually going to be persecuted for what's going on, but maybe not everyone in the same way. You can actually envy the fact that someone isn't suffering like you are. Not necessarily that they drive a particular car. That's Western first world issues. It could simply be why, why do I feel like I'm the only one dealing with cancer that won't go away? Isn't this part of Satan's deception is to make you feel like you're the only one going through what you're going through and you don't want to share it. And you even then compromise, and this goes back to the hypocrisy, even the deceit to say, well, I don't really want to bother other people with my problem, so I'm really not going to share it. But then at the same time, you're actually becoming convinced that you're the only one that's actually feeling it. That is all part of Satan's ruse to get you alone, to destroy you. It's loving to be honest. I'm not saying, you know, air all your dirty laundry. I'm not saying that, guys. There's plenty of other passages. I'm staying in context, though. I can't paint the whole picture of all that we're to be. I'm just saying, according to this text, at this point right here, there are just five things we need to put off. But if we faithfully displace them with the one thing he says to replace it with, I got a feeling you'll, you'll be okay with your speech and your discernment of exactly what it is you do share with one another. And then all slander, the fifth thing. 
This is backbiting, defamation, basically just tearing down. It could be name calling or it could be some kind of character assassination. Now think about these things. Think about it. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. This side of heaven, this side of heaven, we know that there's a lot of practical decisions that we have to make to see some good things happen. And what I mean by that is mostly in the political realm and sometimes in the business world. Like you can't necessarily help if your boss at your work actually exemplifies maybe all five of these things. You still have to be you. You have to be faithfully you in the midst of that circumstance. But what does that not mean? It doesn't mean that in order to succeed, you have to also become these things as well. Now, if you do, if that's being demanded of you, that's when you do truly have to trust the Lord and quit because basically it's being demanded of you to be sinful. That's when you know it's time to go. But a lot of times that's not, it's not quite that extreme just yet. The same thing goes for any other kind of capacities that we would enter into or any other realms. Like the political realm, we can't help that some people are a certain way. But because we want certain policies, we say, okay, they're practically, that's, that's good. But you know what, guys? I get that part. What I don't get is wanting the same policy as someone, but then also adopting their maliciousness and their slander and their envy and their deceitfulness, so on and so forth. We don't have to mirror the behavior of those who might even share in our policies. I get the argument, but that's where the church has become divided. It's not on the policies. The church has become divided in our world, and especially in the West, over the manner in which we've gone about this. You know why? It's because pragmatism, in my opinion, it's because pragmatism has ruled pulpits for really about three decades or more. Pragmatism being the end justifies the means, whatever it takes, even if it means being malicious, deceitful, whatever, as long as the end game is more restrictive abortion laws or whatever else, we feel like the end game is justifiable. Don't get me wrong, never in my life voted for a candidate that wasn't pro-life, okay? Never. At the same time though, we have to understand we distinctly have the words of life. So I'm not talking about how you vote, but I am talking about how you act in the midst of defending your vote. But take that into any other sphere. If you want success in the business world, if you want success in your place of work, do you feel like you have to mirror the characteristics of those above you who are malicious and envious and deceitful and basically live the hypocrite's life in order to get a promotion, in order to be, mm, no. You have a calling on your life. Guys, all this represents, whether it's political, whether it's at work, whatever, it represents what chapter one talked about so much, which is we are thinking in terms of this kingdom. We, we think that this is the end all. As Christians, we are sojourners. We are ambassadors. He says we are elect exiles. This is not home. So our behavior and our manner, not just the end game, but our manner, the way we go about it matters because it will end up putting the gospel on display one way or the other because eternity is longer. Eter I mean, 
just if we, if we really get down to it, would it be worth, would it be worth if, if a coworker came to Christ because you decided that you could not doctor the books, be deceitful, whatever, which was demanded of you, and you said, no, I can't, and you've had a consistent manner of being faithful and having a, a, a peacefulness about you, but you had to go ahead and draw the line because of sin that was being demanded of you, and then you end up having a conversation with the coworker on why you had to quit, and they end up coming to Christ. Is it worth that compared to how much income you're going to be losing? Is it worth it in the end? Well, it's easy to say when that's not demanded of you, but if you're in a society where it's persecuted, where as Christians, it's not going to get better. You cannot legislate fallenness out of our system. I don't care who's in office. I don't care who's sitting in the White House. You cannot legislate fallenness and sinfulness. My Bible says it's not going to get better. That doesn't mean let's speed it along. It just simply means there's going to be plenty of opportunity for us as Christians to put on display in the face of all kinds of persecution that we are his. It's not going to be easier. We have an opportunity each time. They're going through persecution. If things are relatively at peace with you right now, awesome. And I'm not a doomsayer. Let's wait for the other shoe to drop. But there's going to be just enough that you hear and see here and there that's going to remind you. If it's not you, it's going to be your children. But there's going to be resistance to being a Christian in any regard in the public sector. It's, it's going to happen. So how are you living now that shows that? Well, he says, first of all, put away these things. If you love other people, if you love the legacy you're going to leave your children and how to live as believers, do away with these things. He says, basically, put these things away and therefore replace it with this. Like newborn infants, verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So put away all these things and remember this one thing. And here's what he says. Like newborn infants, crave the pure spiritual milk. Now, there's a few other passages that we could look at where milk seems to reference more immature beliefs or behaviors. You know, like being a baby in the faith and you just don't know much yet. But that's not what this reference is. That's not what this is about. This is about what is pure in the essential sense, what is pure in the base sense. It's basically pushes through all the complexities and muck of adult life and just gets us back to a very basic tenet. And that is this, what you want the most, what tastes the best is what's best for you. Like a newborn baby with a perfectly temperatured, you know, sippy cup of, water, of milk or whatever it is, what they want the most in that moment is to them what tastes the best and it's also what's absolutely best for them. It's that simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but he's trying to get us back to something very basic as he pushes through all the muck because guys, persecution and difficulty stirs things up. It creates a lot of chaos. 
And if our beliefs don't remain fixed on just a handful of absolutes biblically, your whole life becomes an upheaval. And it's like he's going through all this and clearing it out to say, put these things off, but here's what you need to remember and what you need to replace it with. Be like an infant. Love the logos, the word. Love it. Go after it. Drink it. Taste it. It's the best for you. And he's saying, if you will persist in this perspective, then what will happen? When you, are, when you face resistance, when you face persecution, when you face dry times, when you face being parched spiritually, you will go and take a drink from the place that you know tastes the best and is the best for you. The pure spiritual milk. Now, the way he describes this, pure is simply just, it's without, it's without guile. It's, it's, um, it's, it's really the opposite of much of what he said in the first five things. The thing I want to focus on is the word spiritual, though, because that's logikos. Its root is in logos. Spiritual milk. There's this holistic, circumspect understanding of the logos that should be informing what it is that we taste, what it is we intake, this logikos. And really, there's, there's really two things that the logos can represent, right? It's either going to be the written logos word, or, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word became flesh, okay, who is Christ, who would also be a logos. I don't think Peter has in mind here any kind of separation whatsoever, because he constantly is going back and forth. He just got through quoting Isaiah. So he clearly includes the written word in his description. But he uses it to point to the person of Christ. This is very consistent for Peter, right? Because the very first sermons out of his mouth were all about how Joel pointed to Jesus and how also David's death in Psalms pointed to Jesus. So he sees no duplicity at all. He sees them being combined together. And I think we need to do the same. I can tell you what he doesn't mean. He certainly doesn't mean, well, show me what the red letters say. If you have a red letter Bible, that's awesome. I choose to never have red letter Bibles because they don't, the red letters do not mean more than the black ones. All of scripture is breathed out by the spirit of God. It's as if what we want to find is, well, if Jesus didn't say anything about this, it must not have been that important, even though elsewhere it has a whole lot to say about it. That's certainly not what Peter's talking about. He's talking essentially about the redemption that we have in Christ, what the word of God has to say about us, what it says about him, and how that gets reconciled through the body of Christ. This essential desire of what tastes best is the best for us means that basically this is our essential diet. Church, if you want to see these things put off and not just put off for a second, but see them put away with and done away with, I'm not talking about perfection, but I am talking about tendency, trajectory, a real change in your desires, a real change in your demeanor. You need to understand that this, you have to have a new diet. You have to intake the word of God. You have to have the word of God coming in on a regular basis. Make sure that you are craving pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. 
I remember John Piper one time said something that at first I, it, it took me back because it didn't sound right. He said that if you are in the Word of God on a daily basis, that does not guarantee that you will grow spiritually. And I was like, Piper, come on, this is... But then where he went next was, but I can promise you that if you're not in the Word on a regular basis, that you will not grow spiritually. For the person of God who has a new nature, a new spiritual DNA, the milk of the Word of God, as it shows, the, so the logos of the written Word and the logos of who Christ is, it is perfectly matched to the new spiritual DNA you have in Jesus. It is the nutrient it is the diet that you need. And it also is great because when you really understand that and how it's producing growth in you, it becomes the thing that you crave more than anything else. The closest thing I can reckon to this um, physically, physiologically, is uh, years ago when I was in the midst of, of a lot of really like the kind of training that I mean, your wife, not my wife, but your wife might hate because you become consumed by it and it affects everything you eat on Friday nights because you're going out for a 15 or 17 or 18 mile run the next morning. I never frustrated my wife that way, but I've heard that other people have done that before. So you know the kind of training I'm talking about. Um, the, uh, but I, I remembered being in those seasons that, that when I was really, yes, probably a little obsessed with it, that I remember that my cravings, it, there, was, there was something that was really unique about it that I really liked, but it's really hard to get to that place. And that was simply, I remember that my, my taste buds, like what I wanted to eat was actually what my body needed. And the reason I know this is because broccoli. <laughs> I, I can promise you before God, I have never sat in a chair watching a football game saying, I want broccoli, <laughs> ever. Or if I knew I needed a steak. Now I've done that before, but not, um, but just, so basically the idea was my body wanted protein or my body needed something else that uh, broccoli or something like it in the vegetable world might have to offer. And I'm not saying it was perfect, but I also drank tons of water at the time. And now I look for every water replacement because water is so boring and dull. But the idea is that it's great when you get to that point when you've trained yourself enough to where what you are hungry or thirst for is also what's best for you. And he says, crave the pure spiritual milk, the word of God, the word of God as it reveals to you Christ, the living word. This is what your soul needs. This is what you need. This is your essential diet. You will grow in this. It will have flavor and it will produce results. But they're still not perfect, right? Because it's in this world. But this is part of the promise that we have in Christ. When you grow in his word in this world, you will just all the more look forward to his coming and his kingdom. The more you fuel the word of God into your life, you start to realize all of what chapter one represents which is, it's an imperishable seed and I've been created for an inheritance that, that I don't have yet, but he's protecting it for me and he's making me ready for it. And so even if you go through more persecution or even more just physical suffering because of sickness, I'm not saying you're all happy-go-lucky about it. I'm just saying the more you have trained yourself with the diet and the milk of the word, that you will be able to endure it better because your hope 
continues to escalate and advance for what's to come. There's no way you can be more in the word and less hopeful about who Christ is and who he's to be when he comes. It's impossible. Which helps your endurance now. So get the junk out of the way. Purge it. Detoxify. Whatever dietary kind of analogy works for you, put away all of the malice and the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, the slander. Not only are these things blockers to real nutrients, they're actually anti-growth. They cause you to shrink. They cause you to lack hope. And you will only go after other things like the children of Israel did back in the Exodus days when they just complained and before they knew it, they were sacrificing their children to idols. Because that's the slippery slope of sin. Displace it with a holy craving for the word of God. To see Christ in that word. To just read a little bit every day and to learn to pray that word for yourself and your family every day. Just, I don't care if you start small. If you haven't been doing it, it will start to revive something in you that is intensely spiritual. Because he says that's really the result, right? Verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I think he means that two ways. One is you will crave spiritual milk if indeed you are born again, because you have new desires. That's consistent with where he's been in chapter one. You no longer have a perishable inheritance or seed. You have an imperishable one, a new desire, a new nature. So new then desires come after that. But it also could be that if you feel like you cannot get rid of these things, you kind of reverse engineer understanding that, look, if there is sin that is pervasive and it's just who you are, it may be exposing that against your better judgment, you may not truly be born again. Now, a true believer cannot lose his salvation. But until you face real persecution and real difficulty and see yourself for who you really are, Sometimes you've just not had the circumstantial situation happen to be pressed enough to really see what fruit is there, if at all. And that's a really tough place to be. So I want to encourage you today that if you have doubts about your own salvation, I want you to talk to us about having those doubts removed through prayer. Maybe even realizing that either you are a Christian and we work through it, or maybe you realize that you never, never really have been truly changed and we get to celebrate with you. But Christian, I want to encourage you. You're going to have difficulty of all various types. You have an opportunity to do away with these things, these five things, which is largely related to your speech and your manner. But in the process, what you, you can't just be absent of those things. You have to fill up what you crave more than anything. And it's going to be the word of God. If Christ is in you, the logos, then the logos of the word, as it continues to explain the logos of Christ, like I said, your DNA spiritually is matched for this. Eat it, consume it, taste and see that not only was he good, he still is. 
And that's, a, that's an essential reminder when it seems like nothing good is going on around you. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you that your faithfulness to us extends even to allowing us to go through difficulty. It's even good of you, God, to strip us of things that we have deemed good in this world. If by that means and means alone, we are reminded that you are the greater good and we find our dependence resting back in you. Father, do your will in us. Cause us to put away the things that are riddled with complaint even when we are unjustly treated. And Lord, I pray that you would provoke in us a hunger and a thirst for your word and to crave that pure spiritual milk. And Lord, may it change us for your glory and the good of each other. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.